Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, magicandalchemy.com is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kate Ballou, and my co-host, Kristen Lizenby. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kristen Lizenby. And I'm Kate Ballou. What's new in the city, Kate? What magic has come your way this week? So, spring is here in Brooklyn, finally. The cherry blossoms are so beautiful right now, but I'm also chugging nettle infusion because, hello, allergies. (laughs) How about you? I feel you completely with the allergies, but I still can't help myself from smelling the orange blossoms every time I step into my backyard. They're so fragrant right now, and we only get them for such a short time, so it's worth it. I loved seeing your photos of them. So tender. Thank you. I spend a good portion of my day playing amateur plant photographer. A worthwhile occupation. (laughs) So today, I'm so excited to dive into the world of magical realism and surrealism, and its intersection with the world of ritual and witchcraft. Kristen, I know you've spent many years studying magical realism. I'm curious about what your research brought up for you this week. So many things. It's hard to pinpoint just one or two to mention. I was definitely reminded how much I love this genre and why. Like you said, I studied magical realism in college, and I had a professor, Dr. Karen Munoz Christian, who adored magical realism, specifically as it appeared in Latin American literature. And I'm forever grateful to her for not only introducing me to this genre, but for her expertise and insight as we worked our way through, I guess what you would call sort of the great magical realism novels, like A Hundred Years of Solitude and House of the Spirits. Those novels are so amazing, but so dense, so I'm fortunate I had someone to guide me through them. When I finally get to read them, I'm definitely going to have to tap you for help. I'll dig out all my old notes for you. But I think this time, what stood out to me more than anything as I was thinking about the intersection of ritual and magical realism was the value of exercising our imagination and how, with practice, we start to see our imagination as a tool, one that can influence our craft and reality in many, many ways. I have a lot of thoughts about this, so I'm excited to explore this idea a little further. But before I dive into the deep, I know that magical realism and surrealism have a bit of overlap, but at the same time, they also have plenty of differences that allow these genres to stand on their own. How do you distinguish between the two, Kate? Or what is it about surrealism that speaks to you? I think like you're saying, the essence of imagination, it's so powerful. But what really drew me to surrealism was through specific writers and painters. I'll speak a little bit about three of my favorites later, but I think as a young woman and witch, Remedio Sfaro, Frida Kahlo, and Leonardo Carrington made me feel empowered in my artwork and writing and sexuality. 
I felt like it was okay to be fluid or strange or misunderstood. And their work and the work of surrealism felt like a playful and yet powerful way to access what doesn't at first make sense, but instead is tied into a deep knowing of things. I think the difference is that magical realism is usually grounded in a familiar reality, while surrealism doesn't have to obey by those laws. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I think that's an important part of magical realism. It has ties to both worlds, this one that we know so well, and some version of the other world. So today I want to talk about this really amazing novel I just read called Piranesi by Susanna Clark. And full disclosure, I will try my best not to give anything away that would spoil the ending, but it might happen. So if you're interested in reading this book, maybe pause this episode and come back after you've finished. And if you have no plans on reading it, I hope that this chat will maybe convince you otherwise. Like Kate mentioned, books that fall into the magical realism genre typically, but not always, take place in a normal, mundane world. Or at least it appears that way to the protagonist. There's usually a logical tone to things, even in the face of illogical circumstances. So it would be perfectly normal for you to talk about going to work, playing with your dog, and then meeting up with your grandmother to celebrate her 200th birthday. The author might include discussion about war, politics, and feminism, which can make you forget that you're reading magical realism until, like in Piranesi, there's a mention of a labyrinth-style house where, at certain times, an ocean tide rolls through. This juxtaposition that we see in magical realism between the magical and the mundane is so powerful because I think we're used to thinking about things in one way or another, rarely both at the same time. Mm. And that contrast is so interesting, it makes me think about Crossroads, a common theme in witchcraft where we're often forced to go one direction or another. But in magical realism, you can do both. You have to do both because that's the reality. And as I was thinking about this, it occurred to me that these juxtapositions these crossroads or opposing forces, whatever you want to call them, really encourage us to reevaluate life as we know it, or at the very least, it generates new perspectives. We get so used to our routine and things being a certain way, and magical realism reminds us that not everything is as it seems. There's a lot of mystical ways of being to be found within the ordinary. Yeah, it encourages a new experience of reality and can therefore challenge our preconceptions about quote-unquote how things work. Absolutely, which then makes you start to wonder what else you don't know, or what else you don't know that you don't know. (laughs) So in Piranesi, the story begins with a protagonist, a man known as Piranesi, who lives in a massive house. The house is the world as he knows it, but it's not a house or a world as we know them. The house has an upstairs and a downstairs. There are long hallways with seemingly endless rooms. Most of the rooms are full of statues, some that possess a striking resemblance to tarot cards in the major arcana. 
There are birds that appear in flocks at random. There is sea life, most of which can be found in the downstairs area where the ocean is. And then there are these tides that roll through certain areas of the house at specific times. Other than human bones and one man who occasionally visits, known only as the Other, the protagonist believes he is the only person alive in the world, aka the house. Piranesi is lonely, but overall he's happy. He doesn't quite remember how he arrived at the house or why things are as they are, but he's also not that concerned with it. He lives very much in the present, and most of his energy is spent on survival. He hunts fish, he learns the tides to avoid getting drenched, and he gazes at the stars through the holes in the roof. He records everything in his journals, which are meticulously dated and cared for, but it's not until a mysterious person appears in the labyrinth and seems to know Piranesi that he goes to his journals in search of answers. This is when the puzzle starts coming together for both Piranesi and the reader. Perhaps the house is not actually real life as we know it in the physical world, but maybe this place is more of an other world or a part of the subconscious or unconscious mind. It sort of dips into surrealism here, which I love and adds more layers to the story. In this novel, it's when Piranesi starts flexing his imagination or questioning things as he knows them that answers start appearing. And as he begins to accept that there is more to existence than what he can see, more and more answers fall into his lap with fairly minimal effort on his part. Which makes me think about how people often talk about exercising their bodies, but rarely do we talk about exercising our mind. Our imagination, which in some ways is both the key to Piranesi's freedom and his prison. How imagination interacts with witchcraft and ritual and how it appears in this novel is really interesting. It makes me think about visualization, one of my favorite forms of meditation and something I incorporate into most of my rituals, and how it's more than just daydreaming about things that we want or things we like. It takes so much concentration to really focus our energy and build a clear picture in our mind that not only mirrors whatever we're calling in, but also generates emotion and allows us to hold it, feel it, and send it out where it will hopefully interact and influence the web of existence or universal consciousness, whatever expression feels right to you. I know that some people out there might think this all sounds very new agey, <laughs> but so many of the great inventors, philosophers, and artists spoke about the value of imagination. Albert Einstein said that the true sign of intelligence is not knowledge, but imagination. Pablo Picasso said that everything you can imagine is real. Buddha said that what you think you become, what you feel you attract, what you imagine you create. The poet Vladimir Nobokov says that imagination is the muscle of the soul. And then one of my favorite quotes from Alice in Wonderland, imagination is the only weapon in the war against reality. Yes. I was reading a book the other day that was written in the early 1900s when Nikola Tesla was still alive, and the author was talking about the process of how Tesla came up with his inventions. According to an article he wrote in Electrical Experimenter, Tesla said that before he actually 
physically does anything, he visualizes his creation for as long as it takes to generate a clear image with no faults or issues. Mm -hmm. Only then will he start physically building. He said that in the 20 years he'd been doing this, there had not been a single exception. His device always worked as he imagined it would. The philosopher Charles Honnell said that using imagination to call in what we seek is just one step, of course, but an important one. It's the seed. Directing energy by taking note of our thoughts, actions, and mindset is a way to coach the conscious mind, because our conscious mind is what trains the unconscious, which, as we know, is the home of intuition. When you think about it, the imagination is one of the greatest tools within a witch's toolkit. It's always with you. I know a lot of times we might feel more drawn to one or the other, either getting too caught up in tedious, muggle life and rejecting the mystical, or if you're like me, maybe you have to remind yourself to put down the book and go put your hands in the dirt. (laughs) You know, remind myself that I have a body, not just a mind to explore and get lost within. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's a grounding experience to just read the work of others and see how they've built worlds. Like, as always, it's about balance, right? Absolutely. And as someone who really enjoys dream work and divination and ritual, I think reading books or looking at art that falls into the magical realism category is a really enjoyable way to reunite the conscious part of reality with the subconscious side the area that so many of us are trying to reach in dreams and meditation or when creating and trying to get into that flow state. How do you work with magical realism in your own practice? That's a good question. You know, I never want to become dogmatic in my thinking. I never want to feel so strongly one way about something that if someone offers a good argument for the opposing viewpoint, that I dismiss it. I want to keep my mind open and malleable or yielding. I don't know what the right word is, but you know what I mean. And a big part of my craft is small everyday magic type stuff. You know, working with plants, divining with spirit through writing, and being mindful of what I consume. Reading is very ritualistic for me. I consider it a rest ritual, which I know, Kate, you and I talk about rest rituals all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And reading magical realism or finding authors that weave magic into otherwise realistic scenarios is such a good way to keep ourselves open to receiving magic in all its forms. I think this probably goes the same for surrealist authors and creators as well. Yeah, absolutely. I can't help but think that it's no mistake that my three favorite artists are three women, surrealist painters who lived in Mexico City during the same time. Leonora Carrington, Frida Kahlo, and Remedius Varro. While I'm not a visual artist, surrealism has always felt like a home for me in a magical sense. Surrealism was a cultural movement, which developed in Europe in the aftermath of World War I and was largely influenced by Dada. The movement is best known for its visual artworks and writings and the juxtaposition of distant realities to activate the unconscious mind through imagery. Artists painted with strangeness and awareness of the beyond and without sense, as some people in the physical world might say. However, witches know better. The 
The Surrealists created strange creatures from everyday objects and developed painting techniques that allowed the unconscious to express itself. I love the Surrealist party games, which can still be found in our popular culture. When I teach young kids writing, we'll often play the exquisite corpse game, where I'll have them write a line and then fold the paper down so that the next person can only see the line right before theirs, and this way, we build a piece of strangeness together. Have you played these, Kristen? No, I haven't, but it sort of reminds me of Mad Libs or the line-by-line poems you were doing with friends at the start of the pandemic. I know that when we did ours, it turned out so much different and better and stranger than I imagined it would. Yeah, it's really similar to that, but you can play with like a whole room of people instead of just two. Yeah. In undergrad, I would write poems from landscapes in Remedius Faro's paintings, and I think for those of you out there who are not spatially inclined, as I am not, automatic writing while looking at artwork can be a great way to interact with art. To do this, pull up a photo of a painting that speaks to you, and I would suggest any of the work from these women, and write without stopping or judgment for a set amount of time. Maybe set a timer for three minutes and then see what comes up. Of my favorite Surrealist painters, I'll start with Frida Kahlo, perhaps the most famous of the three. Frida was born in 1907 and died in 1953. She lived a life of both pain and inspiration. After a bus accident, polio, and miscarriages, she suffered through different casts and medical treatments. She was bisexual, a communist, and a Surrealist painter deeply inspired by Mexico City and folk traditions. I visited her blue house while I was in Mexico City and had tears in my eyes the whole time. She is truly a magical, magical witch. When I was living downtown Detroit, the Detroit Institute of Art has some of her husband's beautiful murals, and I went and saw a concert once in front of them and could just feel their presence there. Remedios Faro was born in Spain in 1908, and she studied painting and the arts in Spain, crossing paths with poet Lorca, who we spoke about in our Word Witch episode. She lived all over, eventually moving to Paris, where she found a home amongst the Surrealists and played Surrealist party games like The Exquisite Corpse with people like André Breton, who was considered by many the leader of the Surrealist movement. She moved to Mexico in the 1940s, and her first show was in Mexico City in 1955. She was friends with Leonora Carrington and acquaintances with Frida Kahlo. About Mexico City, she said, For me, it was impossible to paint among such anxiety. In this country, I have found the tranquility that I have always searched for. And she died in 1963. I just want to interrupt and say that this sounds like a crew I would love to hang out with. Yeah, same. I'm so sad we missed it. Maybe in a past life or something. Yes. Leonora Carrington was born in 1917 and died in 2011 as one of the last living members of the Surrealist movement. She was a British-born painter who spent most of her life in Mexico City. She developed her own version of the Major Arcana, and her artwork, like Varro's work, had a relationship with the strange, the witchy, the ethereal, and the surreal. Like we spoke about last week with Tamil, the tarot has such a divine power to unlock the unconscious mind. 
both Carrington and Vara were friends, and they were passionate about astrology, and I found some recordings of them crafting witchcraft practices together around embodying the role of the sorceress. I like to imagine them being carried away by the stars, like so many figures in their paintings. Dr. Susan Aberth, in studying the work of both Varro and Carrington, writes, I don't know if it was a political agenda, but it was a magical agenda. People think that magic isn't political, but in a way, it's the ultimate politics. It's not transitory. It goes to the heart of how the universe works. I like that. Magic is political and rebellious, and it endures. Definitely. In January of 2020, I was driving across the country and stopped in Los Angeles. I met up with my friend Alex for an afternoon, and he took me to a bookstore in Culver City, which is how you can tell that someone is a good friend. (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) We just took turns pulling out books and reading in silence, and while I was there, I came across a book that had a piece inside of it called A Witch in Search of Myth by Victoria Ferentino. The piece quotes Leonora Carrington saying, I often feel like Joan of Arc, so dreadfully misunderstood. I often feel I am being burned at the stake just because I am different from everybody else, because I have always refused to give up that wonderful strange power I have inside of me, and it becomes manifested when I am in harmonious communication with some other inspired being like myself. I think that this quote speaks directly to that witch wound that so many of us carry around, both the burden and the power and the responsibility to show up in one's power. In doing the research for this episode, I found a book called Surrealism, Occultism, and Politics um, by the same author, and I'm definitely going to have to dive into it. Last spring, I saw that the tarot of Leonora Carrington was being released, and the introduction to this book is written by her son, Gabriel Weiss Carrington. Gabriel writes, The tarot is not meant solely for divination purposes. Each suggests navigation devices where a poetics of the unconscious is available for immediate exploration. He wrote about what it was like watching his mother work on these tarot cards and how she studied the work of others, took him to the store to pick up cardstock, and how she made these archetypes and figures works of her own and of her own journey through life. He describes his mother as being a restless voyager through deep journeys, always in quest of mythic revelations. Her aim was to repair a shattered world and a means to live in it weathering the many images that came her way. I think what I love most about this work is the strangeness of it. There are floating beings, eyeballs wearing glasses perched on books, hooded figures from the beyond, new takes on old traditions, and whisperings from beyond the veil. I think that strangeness has an inherent power and beauty to it. It's the thread that holds everything together. One of my favorite Frida Kahlo quotes is, I used to think that I was the strangest person in the world, but then I thought, there are so many people in the world, there must be someone, just like me, who feels bizarre and flawed in the same ways I do. I would imagine her, and imagine that she must be out there thinking of me too. Well, I hope that if you are out there and read this, and know that, yes, it's true, I'm here, and I'm just as strange as you. 
This quote always made me feel seen by her in my own strangeness, which I think is the power of surrealism. It doesn't have to make sense, and it might not on a cognitive level, but on a soul level, it does. We know what these women are referencing in their work, just like they knew we would. That's such a beautiful thought. I'm sort of lost in your words right now, (laughs) floating around this surrealist trance. What's your favorite way to incorporate surrealism into your craft? Yeah, I think automatic writing, like I mentioned earlier, is a great way for me as a writer and a poet to interact with great artists of the past and present. And, you know, also a reminder that the world is so much more possible and surreal than we can imagine alone. Something we all need to be reminded of at one time or another. Thank you so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kristen Lizenby and Kate Ballou. You can find us online at Easton Alchemy and at K8Ballou. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at Tamed Wild or on the blog magicandalchemy.com. Join us for next week's episode where we talk with a very special guest. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mote it be or something better. Until next time.